Hi everyone, I'm Cara, I'm here to read the Bible. Um, You should find it in your handouts, Uh, it's on one of the pages. It's Galatians 2.11 to to 3.25. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain? If it really was in vain. So again I ask, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law, or by believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then, that those who are... Sorry, that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, and so that, by faith, we might receive the promises of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God, and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of the transgressions until the siege to whom the promise referred had come. 
The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would, not, would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. I wish I could spend more than a few minutes with you, but the polls don't close in the East for another hour, and there are plenty of election results still left in falsify. <laughs> you know, with so many people participating in the political and social debate through call-in shows, it's a good idea to be reminded every once in a while. <clears throat> that it's a good idea to be reminded of the awesome impact, the awesome impact I'm sorry, um, you're Dr. Jen Jacobs, right? Yes, sir. It's good to have you here. Thank you. The awesome impact of the airwaves and how that translates into the furthering of our national discussion, but obviously also how it can, how it can, forgive me, Dr. Jacobs, are you an MD? A PhD. A PhD. Yes, sir. Psychology? No, sir. Theology? No. Social work? I have a PhD in English literature. I'm asking because on your show people call in for advice and you go by the name Dr. Jacobs on your show and I didn't know if maybe your listeners were confused by that and assumed you had advanced training in psychology, theology, or healthcare. I don't believe they are confused, no, sir. Good. I like your show. I like how you call homosexuality an abomination. I don't say homosexuality is an abomination, Mr. President. The Bible does. Yes, it does. Leviticus. 18.22. Chapter and verse. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions while I had you here. I'm interested in some of my mother's daughter in slavery, sanctioned in Exodus 21.7. She's a Georgetown sophomore, speaks fluent Italian, always at the table when it's her turn. What would a good price for her be? While thinking about that, can I ask another? My chief of staff, Leo McGarry, insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35, 2, clearly says he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself, or is it okay to call the police? Here's one that's really important, because we've got a lot of sports fans in this town. Touching the skin of a dead pig makes one unclean, Leviticus 11, 7. If they promise to wear gloves, can the Washington Redskins still play football? Can Notre Dame? Can West Point? Does the whole town really have to be together to stone my brother John for planting different crops side by side? Can I burn my mother in a small family gathering for wearing garments made from two different threads? Think about those questions, would you? One last thing. While you may be mistaken this for your monthly meeting of the ignorant tight-ass club, in this building, when the president stands, nobody sits. 
Well, that video, I hope, illustrates one of the problems that we as Christians have with what's often called the Old Testament law. Uh, I don't know whether you felt the discomfort of that doctor, uh, that Christian there, as she's ridiculed, because the president makes out that the law is actually ridiculous. And to think that you might keep some of it while you ignore the rest is just to be a hypocrite. It sort of illustrates, I think, what it's like for many of us. What do we do with the Ten Commandments and much more that's in the Old Testament law? For Jews, it regulated much of their life, what they could eat, what they could wear or couldn't wear, what they could touch or not touch, when they worked, when they didn't work. But what do we do with it, living post-Jesus as Gentiles? Are we supposed to keep it all? Are we supposed to keep some bits of it? Can we separate it into moral, ceremonial and civil law and pick and choose which bits we like and which bits we don't? How do we avoid the hypocrisy of insisting on some bits and ignoring the rest? Well, that's a weighty question because the law is not just something dug up out of ancient history. It was given by God himself. It carries all the authority of the creator. To transgress it puts us at odds with God. In Galatia, the people this letter that Paul wrote uh, was written to, uh, they were mainly from a pagan, Gentile background. They worshipped idols and other sorts of things. They didn't know much about the Jewish God, nor did they care. But one day this Jewish guy, Paul, came along, Saul as he used to be called, and he preached a message to them. And he says his message was all about Jesus Christ, this guy who was God's Messiah, who gave himself to rescue us from this present evil age. And they believed that message and it transformed their lives. They started living new lives under, for Jesus, trusting Jesus. And things were terrific for a while. And then Paul left and some other Christians came along and they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. What Paul said is absolutely right. Jesus died to rescue us from the present evil age. But there's something you've missed. You've got to keep the law as well. God gave this law. It was, it was printed on 10 tablets of stone. It's, you can't just throw it out. And the particular thing they pushed was circumcision. Now, apologies if you don't understand what circumcision is. I'll explain briefly and then move on. (laughs) Circumcision was uh, especially done to babies normally in uh, Jewish religion. It was to cut off the front bit of the foreskin on the penis. And it would heal fairly quickly and it would change the shape of your penis slightly. That's what it was. And God had given it to Abraham as a sign of the covenant that he'd entered into with God. And so these others came along and said, that's what you've got to do. It's not an optional extra. You need to do it. And the arguments were cogent and persuasive. After all, God said so. He even threatened to kill Moses and his whole family because they hadn't circumcised themselves. That's serious, isn't it? But Paul says what they're preaching is another gospel. It's a perverted gospel. It's not a true gospel. And in chapter 2, verse 11, he begins to recount an episode that shows the difference. Because up to now, he hasn't told you what this gospel is, at least not much of it. He's just said, mine's right, theirs is wrong. And mine is the one that Peter and all the other apostles up, up in Jerusalem, they endorsed, even though we've got it independently. That's last week, if you want to go and listen uh, uh, online to, to the talk. But in chapter 2... Cephas, that's the Apostle Peter, comes to Antioch where Paul has been an elder in the church and Peter does something that really irritates Paul. Not because of his sensitivities but because he sees the gospel is at stake. What happened was when Peter first came to Antioch, mainly made up of Gentiles, Peter was happy to eat 
with Gentiles. Now, that was a huge thing for somebody who was a Jew. If you understand anything of the Old Testament law, it made this huge distinction between clean and unclean. Clean and unclean food, food you could eat, food you couldn't eat. Clean and unclean things that you could touch or not touch. If you touched them, you became unclean. Uh, and uh, if you're unclean, you were sort of you were out of relationship with God. It signified that you were dirty. You were somehow tainted by sinfulness, and so you were obliged to avoid as much uncleanness as possible. You couldn't live life without ever becoming unclean, but you needed to avoid as much as possible. And guess the situation where you get most unclean? It would be eating a meal with a Gentile, because the food they ate was unclean. And it had been prepared with stuff that had prepared other food that was unclean. You couldn't avoid that. And they were unclean because they touched things you shouldn't touch that made them unclean to sit down and have table fellowship with them, eat a meal with them. We might think that's nothing, but for the Jewish law, that was the point at which you were breaking the law if you did it in almost everyday life. For Peter to eat with Gentiles was, was huge, but it had taken something huge to convince Peter it was okay. You might know the story in Acts chapter 10. Peter has this vision from God of this big sheet let down from heaven full of clean and unclean animals, stuff he's supposed to eat and stuff he wasn't supposed to eat. And a voice from heaven, God's voice says, eat. And Peter says, no, why? I can't do that. And God says, don't call what I call clean, unclean. Happens three times. Peter's pretty slow. And then Cornelius, who's a Gentile, his uh, emissaries come and say, will you come and talk to Cornelius? And Peter couldn't have done that if he kept with Jewish law. But because of what God had done, he went. And so when he comes to Antioch, he does what he's learned. He eats with Gentiles. But then these other people come along, these interlopers, and and they come saying circumcision. That's what really matters. You've got to do that. And what does Peter do? He stops eating with the Gentiles. You see that in verse 12. Before certain men came from games, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But When they arrived, chapter 2, verse 12, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Out of fear, he withdrew. And when Paul saw it, look what he did, verse 14. When I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, to Peter, in front of them all, you're a Jew... Yet you live like a Gentile. That's what you were doing and not like a Jew. How is it then that now you force Gentiles to follow Jewish custom? You force Gentiles to become Jews. See, what he's saying is, Peter, when you withdrew from eating meals with Gentiles, what were you saying to the Gentiles? You might not have said anything with your lips, but your actions spoke very loudly. You said, you Gentiles are not really acceptable to God and therefore you're not acceptable to me. I I won't eat with you. You're outside the camp. By his words, he compelled them to become Jewish, to be circumcised, to start to obey the law. Without saying a word, his actions said that to the Gentiles. And Paul says, that is to walk, that is to act in a way that contradicts the gospel. You're not walking in line with the truth of the gospel. And he confronted him about it. Why? Because there's a difference between gospel and law. The gospel says Gentiles are fully acceptable to God without being circumcised, without keeping all the food laws, without having special diets, just by believing in Jesus. It's what Jesus has done that makes them acceptable to God. But the law says 
You can't eat with them. Peter, you mustn't eat with them. So the gospel says, Peter, you're obliged to eat with them. The law says, Peter, you shouldn't eat with them. To keep the law is to break the gospel. To keep the gospel is to break the law. They're incompatible at this point. You can't do both. You can't keep the law and keep the gospel. Do you see why Peter, uh, Paul calls it a different gospel? And for Paul, it really, really matters. And as we go through this book, we'll see why it matters so much. But notice here, Paul is willing to confront an error. He goes into conflict over it. He doesn't avoid conflict on things that really matter. Now, my guess is, as you read verses sort of 11 to 14 and you, and, uh, and, and you see what Paul's doing, you think, man, if I was there, I would have just shrunk into my seat. I would have felt so uncomfortable for, for Peter. You shouldn't do that sort of thing, Paul. That, that's being intolerant. And there are many things which it would be intolerant. But Paul thinks that when it comes to the truth of the gospel, you cannot avoid conflict if people are perverting the gospel. He's willing to enter the conflict. Friends, sometimes we need to be willing to do that. I know our culture moves in the opposite direction. Our culture says never have a conflict with anybody, except behind their back. But Paul is willing to to confront Peter in front of everybody when it matters, and it matters here. So what does that tell us about the gospel, what it is? What's the foundation of the gospel? Well, that's what he goes on to describe in verses 15 and 16. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, that is, we Jews, we, we know this stuff. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Justification is what Paul wants to talk about. He says it's central to this gospel. It's essential. It's at the heart of the gospel. Justification's a legal idea. We, we sort of know about it, I, th- I think. You, you know when you're justified, especially it comes from the law courts. It's the ver- verdict of the judge or the jury. So you're either guilty or innocent. You're either condemned or you're justified. If you're charged with a crime, that's what matters, isn't it? It's the verdict on your action. Are you justified or are you condemned? Because that determines your destiny. But here we're not talking about the WA law courts or something like that. We're talking about God's verdict on you and me. I want to suggest that that's actually the most important question in life. What is God's verdict on my life and yours? There isn't a a question that's more important than that. The university may send you a letter saying you failed, out of here, condemned. It may send you a letter saying you passed, you're justified. But that doesn't matter nearly as much as God's verdict on your life. That just means you work at McDonald's. Who cares? (laughs) So how will anyone be justified before God? Do you see what he says in verses 15 and 16? He says, anyone, everyone, the only way he applies to all people, whether you're Jew, Gentile, Aussie, African, arts, engineering, man, woman, whatever you might be, everyone, anyone, is only justified, not by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, we Jews know that. Peter knows that. He knows it really clearly and well. And even the circumcisers, those coming in from outside, they know that as as well. 
It's the essential core truth of Christianity. Not by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to explore a bit more of what that means and how it works, but let me say up front, what he's saying here is so counterintuitive. It's counter to everything in our experience, I think. Because counterintuitive because in, in all of life, we want to justify ourselves. Our pride, our, our independence makes us want to look at what we've done and do enough and impress people enough by what we've done that they accept us, that they like us. It also goes counter our experience. In everything in life, you've had to work to earn it, haven't you? How did you get to university? Well, you did some study occasionally, didn't you? Enough study to get enough marks to get the acceptance into UWA, and you couldn't get anything better than that, could you? And how do you stay at university? Well, you've got to keep passing, don't you? It's all by your effort. It's not just university, it's, it's, it's family relationships. All sorts of things work by what you earn. And it's counter every religion in the world. Because every religion says, this is what you must do to get your salvation, to be acceptable to God or the, the spiritual powers, whatever you believe in. But Paul says, no, the Christian gospel is the antithesis of all that, of your intuition, of your experience of religion. It's, it, it's been justified not by what you do, works of the law, but simply by trusting in Jesus Christ. It sounds so wrong, it sounds unfair. It seems like it'll encourage sin. But that's exactly what Paul is saying. And he says the negative at the end of verse 16. No, by works of the law, no one will be justified. That is, he puts these two things up and he wants to convince us they're mutually exclusive. You can't mix and match them. You can't bleed one into the other. You can't have a broadening unit where you really major here but you have a little bit of the other one as well. Either you earn it or it's a gift received with faith. There's no compromise position. And for Paul, it leads to different behaviour. If it's by works of the law, then you've got to keep the law. And that means you can't have a meal with your Gentile friend. You've got to be circumcised. But if it's by faith in Jesus, well, you can't not mix with those lawbreakers, those Gentiles, because God has welcomed them because of what Jesus has done. I can't snub them. I mustn't force them to keep the law. Is then Paul promoting sin? So he comes up with this charge in verse 17. Does that sort of mean Jesus wants people to be sinful and makes them more sinful, but makes them break the law by his death for them? No way, says Paul. It's not like that at all. Now, that only happens if, you, if I rebuild what I demolished. So I've demolished the law as a way of being right with God. It's only sin if I rebuild the law again. That's what Peter was doing. He demolished it, he was eating with Gentiles, and then he rebuilt it again. He withdrew from Gentiles. Yeah, then what he has, was doing before looked sinful, but it's not actually sinful because it's in line with the truth of the gospel. That's very compressed language that Paul uses in verses 16 to 18, but I hope you've started to get the idea. It might have left you a bit confused, even unconvinced. Well, chapter 3 is where Paul expands those ideas. So I'm going to do a quick excursion into chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 9 where he looks at the positive side. He clarifies what he means by faith in Jesus Christ. And then verses 10 to 25, where he clarifies what he means by not by works of the law and has a discussion about the law. So if you're a bit confused, a bit unconvinced so far and might have gone straight over your head, well, let's look at chapter 3. Positively, he said at the beginning of chapter 3, it is by faith in Jesus Christ and by faith in Jesus alone 
He starts chapter 3 really quite upset. You foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Who's got under your skin? Who's, Who's distracted you? How could you have been taken in so easily? I'm I'm devastated. And then he makes two points. The first one in verses 2 to 5 is about their experience. He says, remember when you became a Christian? I I came along. What was my message? Well, verse 1, Christ Jesus portrayed as crucified. Now, if there's a billboard for Paul's message, it would have been crucified Jesus. That's what, he would have, that's what they heard. That's what they saw with their mind's eye. It's not what you have to do, says Paul. It's what Christ has done for you. And that was effective for them. They, they accepted that message. They thought it was brilliant. And when they accepted it, when they believed, they received the Holy Spirit. And he can tell them they knew that that had happened. I'm not quite sure how, what the external evidence was. But they knew they had received the Spirit, the seal of God's acceptance and ownership. Now, did that happen before or after they were circumcised? Well, actually, they're still uncircumcised. It happened without circumcision, didn't it? Did Paul come along and say, unless you change your diet and start to keep the dietary laws, you won't get the Spirit? No, they just heard the message of Jesus, they believed it, and they received the Spirit. They were clearly justified back then. So here's his question in verse 3. Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the Spirit... Are you now trying to finish, to be completed by means of the flesh? You started with the Spirit. You started just by hearing the message of Jesus, responding to it, receiving the Spirit. You were fully Christian. You weren't half Christian. Then why do you think you've got to add to that, add law-keeping to that, if you were the full quid back then, right at the beginning? Now, this, this gives us a bit of insight into what these circumcisers are saying. So they're not saying you're not justified by Jesus. They're saying you need to complete that by being circumcised. It's a matter of obedience. The law says you should be circumcised. I know Jesus justifies you, but for some reason, you really do have to be circumcised. You have to keep the law. It's God's law. That's what Paul's arguing against. So he says, remember your experience. And some of you can do that, can't you? You heard this incredible message. I know for some of you it came like a bolt from the blue. You can't earn your way to acceptance with God. You mustn't earn your way to acceptance with God because Jesus died for you. That's the only way you can be accepted. And you, you, you heard that and it was brilliant news. It was the best news you'd heard in your life. And you put your trust in that and you started, you were a child of God. You received the spirit. Life had changed. Did you have to keep the law for that to happen? No. Exhibit two, Abraham. Verses uh, 6 to 9. Now we'll go over the whole story. We'll look at more next week. But God promises to Abraham back in 2000 BC to bless him. And through his seed, through his offspring, to bless all the peoples of the world. An incredible promise that God made to this guy called Abram or Abraham. So it's a promise both to bless him and to give him offspring through whom all the people will be blessed. And what was Abraham's response? He said, well, what do I need to do for you to keep the promise? No, he just trusted God's promise. He believed, he took God at his word that God would do as he promised. There was no law in that. There was no circumcision. It came later, just promise. 
Abraham believed, and we're told, verse 6, quoting Genesis 15, God credited that belief to him as righteousness. God gifted him this status as being right with God, even though everything about him cried that he wasn't good enough for God, just because he trusted him. And his blessing, what was it? Well, it was justification. So what's the blessing that God was going to give all nations through his seed? Justification, being right with God. Who too, to those who strive to keep the law? No, to those who have faith, who trust in Jesus, just like Abraham trusted the promise of God. That's positively, it's by faith in Jesus. Negatively, it's not by works of the law. What happens if you try to do it, if you try to relate to God by works of the law? Well, chapter 3, verse 10 tells us, All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it's written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. If you don't do everything it says, you're cursed by God. Not blessed with justification, but cursed, condemned by God. And who's that? Well, isn't that everyone? You read the law, what does it say to you? Well, it says things like, don't bear false witness. You think, that is, don't lie so that other people get blamed instead of you. Now, how many of us read that and think, man, I need to do better? That's certainly how I respond to that. Why? Because I know I have blown it in the past. I've justified myself, and in doing so, I've condemned others. I've blamed them for things that I need to take responsibility for. It just happens normally in in day to life. So if I say I need to try harder, I'm actually saying I'm admitting I haven't kept it. So I'm under a curse. But the key to the gospel is verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As is written, cursed is everyone hung on a pole. If I'm under the curse of the law, condemned, the penalty for law-breaking is condemnation, death. Christ became a curse for us. He was cursed, condemned, died. Yeah, the, the verse Paul quotes here, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, was almost certainly the verse that kept Paul from becoming a Christian in his former life. Because he knew that Jesus had been crucified, he'd been hung on a tree. That means he was under the curse of God. That means God had rejected him. Therefore, Christianity must be wrong. Jesus can't be the Messiah. It's exactly what Muslims continue to say today. It's blasphemy. Therefore, he persecuted Christians. And then he met Jesus. The risen Jesus appeared to him and he realised Jesus was the Messiah. So what's with this verse then? He realised it was true, but in a different way to how he'd seen it before. A paradigm shift. He was cursed, but it wasn't his curse. It was our curse. The most wonderful way of understanding Jesus' death. He took our curse. That became for Paul the most precious, liberating news, liberating truth he'd ever come across. Theologically, it's called penal substitutionary atonement. Sorry for the mouthful. That's what it means, though. I deserved condemnation. I was cursed. Jesus took my place, substitute, and took my penalty by dying for me in my place. Lots of people don't like that idea. On a day, I was chatting to people from the atheist and uh, agnostic society here at uni, and that's the, they said, that's rubbish. That's, that's just so stupid. God demanding sacrifices and blood and stuff. What a terrible thing. But the Bible teaches it clearly and wonderfully. He didn't. So our confidence would be in his death, 
and not in my efforts, not by works of the law. Now, time's just about gone, so I'm going to have to skip to the end. Law versus gospel. Gospel versus law. Paul flagged with this incident with Peter that gospel and law are incompatible at certain points. How gospel living works is different to how law living works. And so in verse 19, he tells us what happened. He says, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. It's a different way of life, not by law, but a different way of living for God. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I I live by a different power. Christ, by his spirit, dwelling in me, bringing his image into my life. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, not by law-keeping, the one who loved me. So verse 21, I don't set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. See the logic of that? If righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. If you could be acceptable to God because of your goodness, what you've done, Christ's death was unnecessary. I remember chatting to a couple of law students just out on the oak lawn out here. We were talking about God and they both said they believed in God. And then one said, I, I, I know you're a bit more religious than me. I'm happy for you if, if you like that, but I'm fine. I'm enjoying life as it is. I, I think I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. I don't need any of your religion in my life. And I said to him, that makes Jesus pretty stupid then, doesn't it? And there was a bit of a, a, a clunk in the conversation at that point. He, he, what do you mean? I said, well, Jesus thought that it was necessary for him to die for you. You think it wasn't necessary for him to die for you. Either Jesus is stupid or you're stupid. Which one is it? That's the logic, isn't it? If Jesus needed to die for me and you, then I needed it. If I could do it by my own efforts, if somehow by what I do I could ever be right with God, Jesus didn't need to die. It was a waste of flame and time and money. But he thought he did need to die for you and me. It's stark, isn't it? It's one or the other. You you can't compromise. Paul said the gospel is perverted when you say you must do something to be right with God. You either trust in what Jesus has done or you trust in what you've done and say what Jesus did was a waste of money, a waste of time, a waste of a life. Friends, can I encourage you to re-examine how you think about Jesus if you think you don't need him. If you think that somehow you can be right with God without what Jesus has done. By something you are, by something you've done or could do. That makes Jesus stupid.